Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called A Sailor Went to CCC, and today's theme is all things nautical. A woman named Violet Jessup survived the sinking of the Titanic, then the Britannic, and was aboard the third sister ship, the Olympic, when it collided with another boat and nearly sank in 1911. That's definitely a person that our guest today did not need in her crew when she took on the world's greatest sailing challenge. In nautical slang, the phrase roaring 40s actually means stormy seas between latitudes 40 degrees and 50 degrees south. It's also been used to describe ship captains aged between 40 and 50 who love to yell. And there's an outside toilet on the edge of a cliff in Siberia that is two and a half thousand metres above sea level. It receives its loo roll apparently by helicopter. I hope it receives some toilet duck too. Lovely to see you. You too. How are you? That's today's guest, Tracy Edwards, MBE. So a few environmental seafaring facts. A hypercane is a theoretical super typhoon that would occur if sea temperatures rose to above 50 degrees centigrade. It would have wind speeds nearing the speed of sound and it would last for several weeks. To clean out sea turtles after oil spills, rescuers feed them mayonnaise. And in 1997, a container ship carrying a million plastic bags ran aground off the Isles of Scilly and its cargo drifted ashore, which was one million bags bearing the words, help protect the environment. We put a link to Greenpeace in the show notes if you feel moved to make a donation. And on a happier note, in preparation for a treacherous sea voyage in 1519, a Portuguese explorer by the name of Ferdinand Magellan spent more on booze than he did on weaponry. His five ships contained more than 243,000 litres of wine. What a good man. Well, mine kept falling out. I bashed mine out in a sailing accident. In 1989, Maiden inspired a generation of women. Skippered by Tracy Edwards, she led the first all-female crew to compete in the notoriously challenging Whitbread Round the World race. Despite fierce opposition, criticism and sexism, Tracy and her team won two of the toughest legs on the course and came second overall in a landmark moment that opened the door for competitive female sailing. For her efforts, Tracy earned an MBE, as well as becoming the first woman to receive the Yachtsman of the Year trophy. Yes, Yachtsman. No sooner had the race finished, however, than Tracy was forced to sell Maiden. We talk in this episode about how she and Maiden finally became reacquainted many years later, rotting in the seashells. That's Maiden, not Tracy. And what went on to happen next? Tracy is now a pivotal force in raising awareness of the 130 million girls worldwide who are currently not able to access an education, with programmes worldwide enabling girls to get into education and to be supported through their teenage years. You can find details of all that on maidenfactor.org and we put all that in the show notes. As it says on that website, educate a girl, change the world. 
as well as her decades-long affair with Maiden, Tracy and I talked about sailing, sexism, survival, seasickness, bad cooking, falling down, standing up, rebellion, education, Whoopi Goldberg, and changing the status quo. But I started by asking her about her very first time taking to the water. <laughs> that was definitely a one-off. Um, so my father was a sailor, um, although he died when I was 10, so I don't really remember that much about him, which is a shame. Um, but apparently him and my uncle David, who wasn't really an uncle, one of those myriad of adults in your life, you know, is it when, you, when you're growing up, uncle so-and-so and auntie so-and-so, they decided to take my brother and I from Hailing Island to the Isle of Wight on David's I can just remember it as the size of a bathtub, this this boat. And my brother and I were so seasick that when we got to the Isle of Wight, I went, right, that's it. I'm going to live on the Isle of Wight for the rest of my life. That's, that's it. I'm here. I'm staying. You're <laughs> never getting me back into that boat again. And that really was my only experience of sailing when I was younger. And, and it was horrible. And I, I vowed never to set sail again as long as I lived. <laughs> Because I'm also not particularly keen on water. I don't like getting wet. Um, I have a fear of getting cold. I get seasick. So I thought just stay as far away from the water as possible. And then, of course, when I was 17, ended up working on a bar charter boat in, in Greece and thought, wow, this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> Well, I always say that when people hear me do motivational speaking, and I always say my absolute terror was public speaking um, until a certain age. So it's good to know we've both uh, defied expectations and done something different. So how does one go from being a seasick eight-year-old thinking one has to move house because one can't face the journey home across the small body of water um, to getting into sailing and finding your sea legs? Uh, well, I, my dad died, as I said, when I was 10, and my mother remarried a man who I hated with uh, a passion and uh, oh, I think it, the, the feeling was mutual and um, I ugh, became a horrible, horrible teenager. Um, I stole a car when I was 14. I was arrested, uh, put on probation. I was expelled from school when I was 15 for drinking and smoking on the school drama trip. And, you know, I used to regularly get out of my bedroom at two o'clock in the morning, go and do some things which we won't talk about. Uh, and my poor mother uh, just, I think at that point, she just wanted to get me as far away from the people I was hanging out with as, as possible. And she suggested I go backpacking to Greece, which at the age of six, I was 16 at that time. I mean, I, you know, I was still following my daughter to the corner shop at the age of 16, you know, hiding around corners. I can't, it just took so much courage for her to, to do that. Um, and I ended up working in a bar in Greece guy came in one night and said do you want to be a stewardess on a charter yacht and I was 17 by then and I just sort of went yeah okay you know I've got nothing better to do with my time and 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 I mean I was seasick as soon as I stepped on the, on the boat but just I just loved it I, I fell in love with the whole thing not not necessarily immediately with the sailing or the ocean um I fell in love with the people and I realized I had been lacking these people in my life and that that I really had been searching for them without knowing it and and these these this was my tribe these were my people <laughs> and I still remember so clearly thinking that um and I felt I belonged it's the only place I'd ever felt 
that I belonged. I wasn't judged. I didn't have to behave in a certain way. I just had to work hard and, you know, do as I was told and, and get on with everyone. And, it, and, and that was it. And, and, you know, my love of the, of sailing was born. It's amazing when you find your tribe, as you say, I think I found my tribe with stand-ups, which took me until um, I was in my late forties. So well done doing it in your teens, you fast track something that's, I think an absolute vital component, not just of, thriving but of surviving really isn't it we need we need our people but how do you go then so that that sort of because when you look back at it and you say oh you know I was I, I I was a sort of terrible teenager and but as parents ourselves it's hard not to think well if you're doing all of that you know that's it's hard to sort of judge you for that really from what you're saying do you know what I mean it sounds like do, do you feel sort of compassionate towards that self now when you're working with young women now and looking at us all fitting the wheels while we fly the plane for most of our lives, whether we're men or women. Yeah, I think so. I think actually what happened to me in my childhood, I mean, you know, I wouldn't have wished my dad to die and I certainly wouldn't have wished my mum to marry the, the man that she married, but it happened. And it did forge my character and, you know, it, it, it did uh, prepare me for the rest of my life and for the various hardships and knocks to come. And in a way, it's a gift for me when I am working with uh, young people, um, you know, especially, you know, I go, I go and talk in schools and I, I talk at youth clubs and, and things like that. And, and you tell them all you you've know, got to do is get expelled and the world. No, absolutely not. The teachers <laughs> all look at me and go, don't talk about me. So I always say I succeeded despite being expelled, okay. not because of being expelled. Well, I'm well always played. very, very never get rebooked as a that. speaker. And that's that's true, actually, because, you know, when in later life I did need an education, I didn't have one. It's partly why I do what I do now with girls' education, because, you know, I threw away a perfectly good education that's handed to me on a silver plate in this amazing country, which I'm lucky enough to live in. And 130 million girls around the world would do anything to have the problems that I had. Um, Did you leave school with them? We'll come on to what you're doing to educate um, young women uh, and girls. But did you leave school with absolutely nothing by way of qualifications then? Absolutely nothing to my name whatsoever. And I've only ever passed three exams in my life. My grade one ballet, my grade two ballet and my BHF radio license. All the important stuff, Tracy. I don't know what else a a woman would need. Exactly. I mean, you can sail through life with those three qualifications. Literally sail through life in your case. (laughs) And did you, so, so the idea... You were talking about, you know, that now you've just got you've got one daughter, right? Who's an adult do, yeah. daughter, yeah. And I think she's nothing like me, thank God. <laughs> I dare say she <laughs> might quite like to be like you. They'll never admit if they want to be like us, will they? Because that's the job mm. description. We're just, we've just got to be horrendously embarrassing. But when you look at um, how how the sort of how they are now, that generation, and when you think about yourself, I'm sure at 16 when you went off to Greece, you thought you had all the answers and you were very grown up. But as women now, we look back at 16 year old girls and think kind of children when you were a child pretty much when you yeah. went and did that and and when you look back at that now and the fact that you were able to sort of bum around in Greece yeah I'll go out on a boat you know what, what do you what do you make of it I think I feel sorry that that world doesn't exist anymore I, I think it's harder for young people now you know at the age of 14 I managed to get a part-time job pu- putting uh, rubber pipes on the back of gas ovens in in industrial estates in, in clouds just down no the road show where off. I live we want this to be relatable. <laughs> Seriously, I know. And you could kind of always find something to do. You could clean toilets or work in a bar or, you know, find your... There was always 
I found in my life there was something I could turn to my my hand to without any qualifications or you know sort of and I think it is harder for young people these days I think life is more constrained there's more bureaucracy there are more rules there's more regulation um I don't think that they I don't think they have the freedom that we had to find ourselves and find out who we are and what we want to do uh you know and this this huge and going through actually I mean, I never thought I would be, and I, I tried not to be, one of the mothers that, you know, is worrying about your daughter's exams. Um, I probably didn't worry as much as almost any other parent in her entire school because I, I have such faith in what, you know, humans can achieve without all the, you know, sort of stuff we're supposed to have. But you do get caught up in that and, and in understanding from her point of view as she saw life, you know, 13, 14, 15, that she's getting told in school, oh, if you don't pass your exams, that's it. Life is over. I mean, that's it. You can kiss goodbye to the rest of your life. And she's coming home with this stuff. And I'm going, whoa, whoa. That's now, you, of course, you must try hard to get your exams. But if you don't get them, you know, there's always other things you can do. And when she said to me, Mum, do you mind if I don't go to university? I said, no, absolutely. I went to university when I was 47 years old and I thought it was totally wasted on 18 year olds. I'm, I had a ball. But, you know, the 18 year old. What did you do at 47 at uni? Uh, psychology. <laughs> ah, you could have probably done with that 30 years earlier. <laughs> but you really learned more about psychology doing the round the world uh, race with a bunch of women than you could possibly learn in any academic setting. Everything made a lot of sense after doing that course, I have to say. Um, but no, it was surprising the number of parents who I kind of thought were like me who are going oh are you not going to make her go to university I'm going to make her go to university she wants to do photography is that what she does is she a photographer well no we have we have been through a few things on the way but as all the best people go they all go through reinventions good on her absolutely yeah so now she is a chef Oh, fantastic. Which is um, which circles back to you on boats, I guess. So to start with, you were very much sort of in, in a woman's role, as then was. So cooking and stewarding, cleaning. What, yeah, cleaning, so all the fun <laughs> stuff, none of which I can even do now, Tracy, let alone back then on a boat. But um, so you so you, you sort of worked your well, you didn't work your way. And it sounds like it wasn't a plan. Um, and you got back into about ha- just on a practical note, as someone who gets a bit seasick, does that just go away then, or were you, were you hewing up over the side the whole time around the world? Yeah, no, I, I I have spent the last 45 years of my life puking up over the side of boats. Although I do have to say, um, I, I did puke over three of my crew um, the third time I raced around the world, and they presented me with um, a box of Stugeron, um, which... <laughs> and that helped. Which, ha- I have to say, helps. You have to take it before you leave. Very important. Dis- disregard what it says in the box. Take it before you leave, when you leave, and then six hours afterwards. And it kind of works. The reason that no one really takes seasickness stuff when they're sailing is because it makes you drowsy, which yeah. can be dangerous. So hence, you know, there's sort of the, the much peaking up over the side. Um, and, of course, when you're cooking, the worst place to be when you're seasick is down below. And I mean, when I was cooking on Atlantic Privateer, I mean, they were all such disgusting, you know, they're boys. I mean, they're all disgusting anyway. So they didn't mind me just puking up in the sink uh, rather than, you know, sort of going up uh, on, on deck and puking up over the side. So, so men I mean, are it, better. We may as well just go back to the drawing board. 
Oh, <laughs> no, men and men are, men are most definitely not better. We are different. We yes. are very Well, I agree with you. Yes, different. I go around trying to sort of break through, we'll help women break through some barriers to careers and obstacles. And I always say, you know, it's about equalism. We're just trying to bring everyone to the same level. No need to yeah. punch anybody down. No. But the idea of you, I feel you need more than an MBE for having sailed around the world puking. I just think even without the puking, most of us would be <laughs> sort of doffing our, our caps to you. So you still felt sick all the while. And because like whenever I've had seasickness, you feel like you want to die. I mean, I oh, literally yeah. thought I want to, I want to die. But you've yeah. and then you've been in these enormously challenging environments fighting for your life, let alone fighting to win legs of races. So how on, I, I'm just trying to piece this together. I mean, are you superhuman? How did this happen? <laughs> no, actually, kind of the, the dangerous stuff does take your mind off the seasickness. I guess that's an um, advantage. Know, I'm going to die. I've forgotten. I feel queasy. Yeah. Yeah. The best description I've ever heard of seasickness is, first of all, you're afraid you're going to die. Then you're afraid you're not going to die. Perfect. <laughs> and also applicable to comedy. So... <laughs> <laughs> so yeah no you just put up with it and and you get on with it and and if you are going through big seas and horrendous situations it, it does it does get better as the trip goes on I mean god you don't spend the whole you know 56 days at sea puking you you, you would die um the first sort of two or three days is, is rotten absolutely rotten and but you know you get over it and then you, you kind of become acclimatized to, to to the movement on the boat your middle ear seasickness is all about your middle ear if you have very good balance you're very likely to get seasick because your middle ear is very good at keeping you on on a level um, and so when it's not on a level, it bites like crazy. It doesn't know what's going on. And that's what makes you nauseous um, and, and feel like just lying down and, <laughs> and giving up. Um, but no, I mean, it's like, you see, it's like you're sailing around the world. So many people say to me, I can never do what you do. But you see, anyone can. And if I can, anyone can. And to me, this is absolute proof. Human beings are capable of so much more than we think we are. And, you know, if I dropped you on a boat in the middle of the Southern Ocean, you, you would get on with it. You, you know, you would get on with it. Your 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 survival instinct would kick in um, and you would just become part of, of what's happening around you. And that's another thing that I that, that I love about sailing is you 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 really are part of nature. Um, you know you're part of everything that's that's going on around you and you really do find out what your limits are and and your limits are surprisingly more than you think and is that I mean that's the thing that is so it's almost the opposite of what from what I understand men in that world had been trying to say which is this is bloody hard women can't do it you couldn't begin to don't you worry about that darling you stay on the shore let us do the tricky stuff and then you went bowling in and um and anyone who will put a link to it anyone who hasn't seen the film made and if they watch that I think they'll get a sense of, of also quite how much you were running against the grain of the time and how much the world ran with you which make, gave me goosebumps watching let alone what it must have been like for you watching that back in fact how was it for you watching that back when you when you watched Maiden for the first time oh god so weird it was so weird we all got together because after Maiden, we've all kind of had little reunions, but very rarely are we all, because we're nine nationalities out of 12. So very rarely are we ever in the same country. And and um, 
they did bring us all together. They flew everyone into to London and they premiered, had a quiet sort of private premiere at BAFTA, which was very exciting. And so we all were all together for the first time, all of us for 27 years, apart from Michelle, who was sailing the Northwest Passage, because there's always one. She be? Yeah. Always one. <laughs> and it was just lovely. And we had our families with us, because our children, daughters, sons and everything else. And we were all sitting there looking at this film and, and we were going, that's not me that that's not me and it was so hard to relate and especially as I was looking at some things that I say in the film and I'm thinking I I was sort of myself as a bit of a prat you know I mean I never remember saying anything that profound or sensible or intelligent um and it was surreal but the best thing was afterwards um there were if you're listening to some of the comments from people's kids and Jenny's two boys, I don't know how much, they were quite young, I don't know how much they knew about what their mum had done. And I just happened to be looking at them and listening when they looked up at their mum and went, Mum, really cool. You know, this really sort of surprise voice. It's like, yes, we did actually have lives before we had you. It's it's, it's an astonishing thing, but uh, that's yeah. hard one. Normally, I think you have to wait for the eulogy uh, when they might ever say you were cool <laughs> or amazing, and obviously, we'll miss that. So, well done, get, get any of you getting that um, in in living in living years. And did you? Because the the bit when it must have been obviously my perspective of it, you and I are a similar age. So I remember what I was thinking as a woman of similar age watching this happen. And I don't know how consciously I thought everything's different now because of this, but but unconsciously I definitely did. And I think in my sort of inner conscious unconsciousness, some, something in that among a few other things that were happening at that time, even though feminism wasn't articulated in the same way, but I started to just inherently think, well, of course, I don't even need to think about the fact I'm female, I'll do what I'm gonna do. So I think it was hugely significant, way beyond the world of sailing and indeed women in sport. But my perspective of it was, was watching you do it and watching that footage at the time, but you obviously hadn't seen that footage until you saw the footage. So how was it for you seeing that? It must've looked very different from the other side of the lens. It did. and. I mean, for us as well, we we had forgotten how awful men were towards us at that time. I mean, right. I, well, give examples of that. I'd forgotten the tinful of tarts expression. Oh, yes. um, I mean, which I have to say, I mean, in the end, we embraced it. And, and this is, a, again, another a real sign of the time. And you, you will recognise this um, trait amongst us women as well. Um, you know, the tinfoil of tarts things, we we kind of just, you know, Bob Fisher, very well, very well respected journalist, you know, wrote for the Guardian newspaper. This wasn't in some little horrible little side magazine. And he wrote, uh, maybe it's just a tinfoil of tarts. And we kind of just went, oh, whatever. And we, we just let it, we let it blow over us. But when we won the third leg coming into New Zealand, um Bob allowed himself to change his mind which I just thought Bob and I remained friends for the rest of our lives then and he died sadly not not very long ago um, but he supported all my sailing projects after that but when we sailed into New Zealand his headline was not just a tin full of tarts a tin full of smart fast tarts and uh, we loved it we loved that title and I remember someone saying to me you do know the word tarts is still in that sentence I was just like 
small steps. This is just baby steps. You know, we had a woman, a woman wrote the headline, Back to the Kitchen Sink, Girls, You Failed. I mean, and it is hard now. You know, and I remember my daughter. And they about failed the because you didn't win. Is that what they were saying? No, no, no. It was it was about a, a, a something that had happened on the project. I can't remember what it was. This is way before the start of the okay. race. Oh God, no! So even just because when you were trying to set it up against yeah, the odds, but yeah. just getting to the start line was, you know, how dare you? How who do you think you are? I mean, I do look back at it, and I do think, you know, this twenty-three-year-old cook um, who said, "I'm going to skip her around the world race boat with a lot of females." Of course, they said, "Who do you help? Do you think they are?" So would I. Um, but I not many people daughter. go from cook to skipper, regardless of gender, do they? That's no, a big. That's quite no. a meteoric rise. That 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 was quite something. But if I hadn't done the eighty-five, eighty-six race on on Atlantic Privateer with seventeen men who, okay, did not want me to be on the boat to start with, but once they realised that I actually wasn't a liability, um, I mean, my cooking was <laughs> god awful. But um, you know, I kind of didn't you know, endanger them in any way. They they sort of warmed to the idea and, and we did win a leg with me on board. So I then became their sort of lucky child. Um, getting dates was a nightmare because I had 17 older brothers um, and everyone else in the fleet was terrified of them. So that was fun, not. Uh, so um, so what I successful on what, that first one round the world. <laughs> what I learned on that race from these guys was I could never have learned that from anywhere else. You know, I, I could never have done Maiden if I hadn't done the 85, 86 race as a cook with a load of awful guys. Because you had no option to learn really. it from women at the time, so you were going to have to learn it exactly. from guys. Yeah. Exactly. And there, and it's, it is hard for young women now to, to have any understanding of how hard it was. It's hard for me to remember, as I say sometimes. I mean, when my daughter was 14 and we rescued Maiden, um, she used to call Maiden my firstborn. She'd say, oh, yeah, people would say, you know, you and only child. No, 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 Maiden is mum's firstborn. I'm glad she's I'm got that straight, born. yes. <laughs> and she said to me, she said, mum, you know, I think it's great what you did, but why why does everyone make such a big fuss of it? Women can do anything. And I'm like, yes, now, but <laughs> at the time, it was people genuinely thought we were going to die. I mean, they they when we got to the first stop, Jaws literally hit the deck. Because I mean, we people were still alive. Were, we were still alive. We were gutted because we were in third place. I mean, we were inconsolable, but everyone else was like, oh my God, you're alive. Is it um because just just hearing how you had to put that together? So have it you you were the first skipper of an all-female crew because you had to be so you the only way you were going to find a way to skipper was to create an, an all you weren't going to find another way of doing it is that right so through necessity you were like well we're going to have to set this up for all women get the boat do it ourselves it, it kind of grew organically really I mean I didn't start out as a feminist I didn't know what a feminist was I mean I to me the feminist was Jermaine was... Greer back then that was it well, yeah. her. <laughs> we were like, that's yeah, it. Exactly. she's doing that we'll just get I on mean, with our my lives mother... My mother was a woman's liver. I mean, yeah. she was. And so I had always had that sense of, of course, you can do whatever you said, set yeah. out to do it. Didn't no have one was talking about feminism. We're not men. Didn't have a title. Yeah. 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 But I didn't realise, I guess, in a way, that when I was a stewardess on a charter yacht, these these little, these charter yachts with four crews, skipper and cook, stewardess and, and deckhand, very much like a nuclear family mm. where the girls do the girls' things and the boys do the boys' things. But because it was sailing and I loved it, I'd never really noticed. It was only when I moved into racing that I thought, oh, okay, 
things don't work like that in racing. Um, and it was when I was getting to the end of the 85, 86 race that I just had this incredibly profound thought, which was no man will ever let me navigate on an around the world race boat. And I'd learned to navigate a few years before my second transatlantic. And I am a much better navigator than I am a cook. I can tell you that right now. Sounds like it's a low bar to be fair, Tracy, but yeah. Oh, it, it is. Oh, it's a very low bar. You have that. How my daughter is a chef, I'm just like, how does She had to be by the sounds of it. She's three. She's like, I'll do the beans on toast, mum. You, she you did. go and motivate some other children. <laughs> God, I wish that wasn't true. Um, Woman after my own heart. <laughs> but um, So I, I thought, how I went, I literally went home to my mum. I went, Mum, I need to change the world. And she's like, Oh God, really? In what way do we need to change the world? So I'm like, I want to navigate on an around the world race boat. Men are not going to let me do it. And she said, Well, you'll have to do your own project. So, and then it makes me laugh now, the two of us sitting in the kitchen going, Oh, okay. So I'll put a project together and get a boat and do a crew. And then I'll choose myself as navigator. And I mean, I was going to have a skipper as well, but I ended up doing that as well. Um, and then the all so you were skipper and navigator, which in its own right is unusual. It's very unusual, mm. yeah. But that was kind of my own fault, and I blew, I blew the situation uh, in a way which I paid for. Um, but um, the the all female crew kind of just happened out of the oh well, if I'm going to prove I can be a navigator, why don't I put an all female crew together, and then lots of women can prove that they could do it. And it wasn't really until later on that I thought, oh, okay, yeah, I am a feminist. Oh, I'm a huge feminist, huge, huge, huge feminist. But it drove me to that putting that all-female crew together. I mean, I just thought I was doing something that no one really – I knew they'd say you can't do it, but I thought they'd kind of leave us alone to get on with it. But it's a bit more than plotting a school project with your mum at the kitchen table, isn't it? Even for the people like it was me a little not bit. in the sailing world. There's a bit to it in terms of um, – I mean, even funding it, because one of the things I do know about is trying to fund projects that people don't always think are a sensible project that ticks the box of what they should be funding, particularly corporate yeah. funding at a grand level that this would have been. So I imagine, let alone the fitting out of the boat, finding the boat, finding the crew, even trying to get funding, must was that one of your biggest fears in the lead up, whether you could actually get it paid for? Oh, God, that was the, oh, that was the biggest nightmare. I mean, I... The stress was just extraordinary. And and that, I mean, I, I the film doesn't really convey the build-ups because we weren't really filming. We filmed little bits and pieces beforehand. Um, but yeah, you we, miss we, that jeopardy. You get the jeopardy from when it's happening onwards, don't you? But not the pre-jeopardy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's like most sports. You see them cross the start line. You have no idea of the blood and the sweat and the tears that have gone to get that person to the start line um and there were a couple of times where we really thought we're not going to make it i mean we're we're really not going to get to the start line and what the film doesn't show because i know they couldn't it kind of that you you have to have a um a, a formula don't you for a film and we we fit it quite well except we didn't win the last leg which the director was very annoyed about that we hadn't done that I said not as bloody annoyed as exactly. I was mate but yes. anyway sorry to inconvenience you director. yeah yeah <laughs> still think about it now but we won our first ever leg uh, um won, won our first ever race which was a transatlantic and that was a sort of a build up to the to the Whitbread and we won it um. And we thought, that's it. 
we, we've won it. We've run won our first race. We'll come back. People will be throwing money at us. They'll be going, how much do you need? And it was a tumbleweed blowing down the road, you know. Which wouldn't have been the case for a male crew at that point no. with that track record. Isn't no. that interesting? And because they thought, was it about they thought you were going to kill yourselves because you were women out there by mistake? Was it that they thought it was bad for the brand? Because also you'd think it would be a great brand opportunity. Yeah. It would now, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm still looking for money for Maiden now, you know. And and, and we will put a link to how people can help you with that trend. <laughs> not. Um, it never ends. It never, ever ends you know and yes women's sports is doing really well at the moment with the lionesses and the roses and you know what's just happened in ireland with that um little gymnast who didn't get given the medal i don't know if you saw that so a little girl of color who was missed out and and all the girls got medals and this happened last week and by the time this goes out yes this is going out this week um and she just was passed over for the medal and the the gymnast board of ireland i think i think it was ireland um have have not particularly come out i mean the whole rest of the world's come out guns blazing but uh you have a look at it it's got I mean, a little shock you given what you're well, it was oh my anyone, god but given what you're doing for women in the world and women in sport it's quite unbelievable that that might happen um and obviously in that case uh it's it's beyond sexism as if that's not bad enough but um it's unbelievable that just happened this week i, I yeah have a look at the footage but i don't want to get us depressed but we will push a link to that footage and anyone who feels like doing anything to help the world in this way namaste motherfuckers namaste motherfuckers but in terms of you um because there's all the sort of sexism in the lead up and the and the sort of doors that still get slammed in people's faces and I don't know what your view is. I think things get better and they get worse in terms of um, sexism. I'd, I'd love to think it's just a clear cut trajectory in the right di- direction. I don't think it necessarily is. I don't know what your view is. No, I, but I, I don't think anything in life is, you know, I, I'd, I'd love success to go in a straight line from A, you know, in an upward trajectory to B, but every talk I do in schools, I make it very clear, you know, what's the secret of success, Miss R? I almost hate to be the one to tell you this but um there isn't one yeah um yeah. and it's messy and it's that's one of the things I loved about the film they didn't gloss it you know they really they used our interviews in the way we wanted them to be used and we were very clear that we want girls you know girls who are under so much pressure much more pressure than we were to look a certain way and be a certain way on social media and to have clicks and likes and you know airbrush and, and all these all of these things which girls have now have to deal with which i think is much worse than what i had to deal with much more pressure um you know i wanted them to see that it was messy maiden was very messy you know and 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 we we I mean, God, I, I screwed up so badly by, you know, sacking MC. How did you said that you ended up doing being skipper and navigator because you fucked up? You didn't use that phrase. I did. In what way? <laughs> oh, but I'm a sailor. I use that phrase a lot. Good. Um, but I you know. I mean, I let Mary Claude down dreadfully, you know, and I didn't talk about what the problem was. And she's not telepathic, funnily enough. And uh, I thought, well, why, why, why are you being like this? Because I wasn't telling her. I mean, Mary Claude now is my team manager. She now runs Made. Um, we, you know, we made up after the race, and and, she... and was it just too big? Was it because you both had you were both sort of wanting to be in charge, or what? What was what was the sort of yeah? Was it like a sort of not a silver back off because that would be males, but yes, something like that. So whatever the female <laughs> we're both very alpha females. Yes. <laughs> we are, but I mean, she joined, and I was was you know, I wanted her initially. Well, I thought I wanted her to be the skipper, 
I didn't realize I learned so much, so many things about myself on Maiden. And one of the things I learned was I'm a control freak. Who knew? Uh, well, apparently everyone except me. So I realized that I couldn't have her as a skipper because she wasn't going to do the sail the boat the way that I was and do the things that I wanted her to do. And so I, instead of letting her go six months before where she could have got another ride, I did this awful thing, not on purpose, but just not dealing with it and thinking, it'll be fine. It'll go away. It'll sort itself out. I mean, I hate confrontation. Oh, like most women, I just don't do confrontation unless I'm absolutely forced into a corner and then I will come out fighting. But no, dreadful, dreadful what I did. So you basically uh, ditched her and didn't there rendered her without the possibility time-wise to get with another crew in time. It's amazing that she forgave me. I mean, now we're best mates and as I say, she runs Maiden. She does like that voodoo doll, that Tracy voodoo doll that you don't see. Yeah, I do wonder actually why I do get those pains every so often, but (laughs) she does love freaking the new crew out, you know, when she meets the, when we have new crew coming onto the boat, we have what's called the Maiden program, 102 women through it. A new crew join and she walks in, she goes, yes, I am the one she sacked. And they have no idea what to do with that information. You know, they're all like 19, 20 years old. They go, okay. It's only three decades ago. Why let go of a grudge, I say? Oh, we're still having the same arguments. I can tell you. And everyone's like, oh God, drop it, please. Everyone's thinking it was the right thing to do, not to set out to see together. And for people who don't know, um, who haven't watched the film, it's it, the, the distances just in terms of the experience of the round the world. So to just take us through the kind of the, 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 the route and the distances and the legs. So each leg is between six to 7,000 miles, which is five to six weeks at sea. Um, the the 8990 race, we didn't stop in South Africa because um, of sanctions against apartheid, quite rightly. Um, so we sailed from the UK to Uruguay in South America. And then we did the longest leg of any Whitbread ever because we didn't stop in South Africa. We went right down into through into the Southern Ocean, 7,800 miles, longest leg ever to Australia. Uh, that took seven weeks, and that's the longest. Um, actually, not the longest I've ever been to see because I did the single hand, uh, did the non-stop round the world record. But uh, How the long next did that day, take the non-stop round the world. Well, it, it, we were at sea for two months before we lost our mast, and unfortunately, didn't break the record um, at Cape Horn. But um, the one to third leg. Um, which is another leg that we won, is the shortest leg. That's 4,300 miles, so that's just three weeks at sea. Then the next leg is New Zealand, round Cape Horn, back to Uruguay, another six and a half, seven thousand miles. Then the first stop in America, which is a 6,000-mile leg from South America up to Fort Lauderdale. And then the the sprint across, back across the Atlantic, which actually is, that is the shortest leg. That's 3,800 miles. Oh, nothing. 3,800 miles. and do Almost you... not worth getting out of bed. Exactly. I wouldn't. And is it in terms of the actual, how long do you get on sort of on land before you go back out to sea then between the legs? About three to four weeks. So you have to mend the boat, mend the crew, rest. Have a bath um, and then another bath and then another have bath. Have a lot, oh, lot of baths. You see, that that's one of the very good um, things about having the greatest shore crew in existence ever in the Whitbread was when you arrived into, into the crew house, all your clothes would be put away and there'd be soap and perfumes and nice smelly things on the bed. So different from the guys. Yes, <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, I insist on that for less good reason, to be honest, when I get somewhere. And do you, because in terms of the practical, the practicalities of it, 
the routine in that world so you're you're sleeping in rotation presumably so you're never and presumably small, short bursts so your sort of circadian rhythms must be absolutely buggered at that point yeah so you do four hours on four hours off and that you do that for you know five to six seven weeks whatever however long that is you don't really on land three weeks is not enough to get back into a um but you see this is a very interesting thing because our sleep patterns the way we work and sleep are man-made humans are not designed to sleep for eight hours work for eight hours and play for eight hours that's not what we're designed to do we're designed to hunt eat sleep and then repeat the process so you know a lot of people are tired they're stressed they can't get enough sleep you know they're, they're falling asleep in work they're whatever this is because we have created this very false environment within which you know we we all live if women around the world this things would be totally different because they would need to be around what we do um but you know same as offices you know they're set to the temperature for men when i found that out i just couldn't believe that but there's that book isn't there um, invisible women that looks at all of those things and even in terms of um you know crash test dummies and looking at seat belt fittings things that absolutely i know when i used to skydive and and not very many women did it at the time and the rigs they would put me in were for men and they didn't they weren't I mean, they were safe because I'm still here, but they were almost not able to be adjusted to suit my body shape and size because there weren't men as small as I am or not many. And 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 I, yeah, it's amazing how the world still is so set up, oh. even on an ergonomics level and a safety level. Not Absolutely. Oh, we still can't find sailing gear for women. Uh, maiden was 33 years ago and we still can't find a company there is no foul weather gear company i hope you're all listening out there that does specific women's stuff they do smaller men's stuff and we're like we're not the shape we're not the same shape as men we have hips and waist there's one thing women are not it is just smaller men let's just get that out this this is this is what we're perceived to be so we've just kitted out the girls for um, the. Oh, apparently, I'm not allowed to say that anymore. The women for the um, the round the world race that Maiden's doing now, her final one, and we were having the same problems this time as we had 33 years ago. And we're like, seriously, thousands, hundreds of thousands of women sail now, but we are still not catered for. Will that help with, with speak- what's going on in um, women's football, women's cricket? Do you do you yep. think you, you kind of think how much evidence do people need, including oh, going back know. this long, that that we're all right at it? So what, what's it going to take then for for that this to start to be supported with a sort of infrastructure kit that you need, <laughs> investment that you need? Because I feel like you you've done a you've been quite the poster person for all of this for quite a long time now, and it's sort of worked. People know about it. Yeah, well, you know, as I say, we still struggle. I have struggled with every sailing project I've ever done. I mean, I I will not do anything other than all-female crews, and I have struggled um, because of that. And we have a very different crew now, and I hope we'll get on to speak about that. But just finishing with the sleep thing. Yes. Um, Four on, four off. You see people go, oh, my God, how do you do that? It's actually not that hard. It's quite easy to get into that kind of rhythm. Because because that's our natural primal rhythm. Yes, so when you get onto land, it's actually really hard to go back to the 
eight hours sleep, eight hours work, eight hours play. Oh God, I don't know. I mean, you you know, you're falling asleep all over the place. Wouldn't it be better so, if uh, you could just, I guess you can't stick with the at sea rhythm because the world doesn't work like that. On, well, it doesn't land, work like that. It's a shame because in a way, like it's like with jet lag, you try and sort of pick a, pick a cycle <laughs> and stick with it, don't you, to combat it. And I guess that's not an option when you're trying to have dinner with sponsors in Auckland. You're falling asleep in the middle yeah. of it. Yeah. <laughs> and do you learn to just, um, in terms of the sort of, the lack of any, I guess you, you know, you're, you're rotating presumably bunks. You're not, you haven't got your own sort of space. You're very much cheek by jowl. No one's had a washing however long. If you get wet, you stay wet. I imagine there's not, there's not a nice way to go and air dry. And is it true that seawater doesn't dry like non-seawater, yeah. that it just stays wet? The salt never dries properly. So you've always got this horrible feeling of things not being a hundred percent dry. You know, that horrible feeling. I do know it, but not as well as you all know it, I suspect. My, I've, I mean, as a cliff walk in Cornwall, I suspect that's not quite as There you go. As, as you, you know exactly. I know exactly what it's like. I'm like, oh, get me a cream tea and a hot bath. Tough. <laughs> well, that's we're like that a lot of the time as well. <laughs> so you've got this, um, you've got this kind of very intense environment. You're, you're, you're sort of eating, not washing much, coping with all the challenges that life throws at you. And in terms of being scared, so you're, you're only ever this far away from something going terribly potentially life-threateningly wrong I imagine so you never qu quite know no matter what you're doing to to sort of legislate for that so there were there times when you were scared for your life oh yeah and and anyone who says not is is an, either an idiot or they're lying of course you should be not maybe not afraid is is too strong a word but you 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 need to have a lot of respect for the ocean. I mean, it is trying to kill you. It's not. It's not. Um, it's not making any uh, bones about it. You know, it's, it's not doing it quietly or secretly or talking about you behind your back. Um, you know, it, it is. At, you know, everything about it. So you have to have a healthy respect for the ocean. And of course, there are times where you're afraid, and actually, that's very helpful because that gives you your fight or flight response. Um, you know, where human beings are designed. This what we're not designed for is what's happening to us all now, which is this permanent anxiety when we wake up every morning and think, oh, God, what's the news going to tell me? I've got to be worried or scared about today on top of all the other things that I'm worried and anxious about that I have no way of changing in our world. You know, we all are, are so saturated with this anxiousness. That's unnatural. That's unhealthy. Being at sea where you're mostly fine and then you have these moments of of fear or terror or whatever that's what human beings were designed to do to have short um uh, the fight or flight response should be you know short because we we the adrenaline the cortisol and everything else that's going on in your body um that's that's okay that's what as i say what we're designed to do what what people ex are experiencing now is horrendous um, and the difference of being at sea and just dealing with real emergencies and being on land and, and having to be scared and worried about everything is is, um, is huge. It's the definition of being mindful as well. You cannot be more present or in the moment than when you're literally fighting to survive. There's 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 no capacity to be running a dual narrative of of stress at that point. And what's the if you had to sort of pick the scariest moment on that round the world race? What is it? Once we'd been around Cape Horn, which we got away with amazingly. I mean, the weather going around Cape Horn was was deceptively good. And we're all like, oh, that's a bit of a worry. 
that was a bit easy. Um, we were right to worry. We we came up past the Falklands and uh, we were smashing into the waves going into the wind and um, we opened up some hairline cracks in the mast. Uh, there were also a number of other reasons for, for what happened, but that, that was the, the, the main one. Um, and we started taking on a lot of water. And, and I did, that was the only time, apart from when we saw the first iceberg and we hadn't seen it on the radar, that was a momentary, oh, that's interesting. Um, but How this big was, was a, the iceberg you saw? Oh, it was huge. I mean, it was absolutely ma massive. I mean, we, you know, it wasn't hard to see. The growlers are the, the difficult ones. They're the size of a car that float just below the water. Um, but... Uh, this was a sustained four-day period of me thinking I'm responsible for 11 other lives. And, of course, I think that all the time. Why wouldn't I? I, I have that in my mind. But this was a real focus on the I have to now be perform at my top level and know exactly what I'm doing because I'm in charge of these 11 other lives. And, I mean, you look at health and safety then and now, it was so different. We had the life rafts were locked in the cockpit and you had to remove um one of the grinder winch handle grinder winch handles and unlock the locker to get it out that would have taken about 10 12 minutes that's way too long how long into the water the... seeping in were you asking someone discreetly to start unlocking those sal was the person i asked sal who's writing our blog now for us and i said sal I'm just going to just quietly unlock the um the lockers where the life rafts are and just see how long you think it would take but don't tell anyone she's like yeah i'm on it so i mean there, there was a but you see everyone's looking at your face everyone is looking at you to see what expression is on your face so i'm like oh this is fine oh god we went through much worse than this on atlantic privateer it was the only time i lied through my teeth to my crew because I had to so you're modeling um, being a fearless leader I've got this we're going to be fine even though inside you're thinking shit absolutely petrified and how did that result because I, I mean I'm no expert on sailing but I imagine the older water coming in it's not the not the favorite thing that's happening so how do you cope then you said you had four days of that with water coming in in completely treacherous conditions how are you what are you physically doing at that point then are you literally well, bailing it out Bailing it out that there is an expression, there is no bilge pump like a bucket in the hands of a frightened sailor. And mm. that is very, very true. Um, so I'm in the nav station calling May Day and we had an RAF Hercules was, was scrambled from, from the Falkland Islands. Um, while so the, someone while knew I, this was going on at least by yeah. this point, which I guess yeah. in other parts of the race wouldn't have been the case. You could have literally no. been on your own with, with yes. no, nobody knowing. Being close to the Falklands was the only good part about what was happening to us. Um, and I'd see these buckets going backwards and forwards past the nav station going, oh, my God, there's so many of them. In the end, what we worked out was when we tacked over, um, we, we were heeled over to the other side, so lean, the boat was leaning over to the other side, the water emptied out. So we literally spent the rest of that leg, which was about seven days, filling it up, emptying it out, filling it up, emptying it out until we got to, to port um, and then fix the problem. Wow. Well, I think that's some um, I've just realised, you know, if we're if we're the competition on the motivational speaker circuit, I think you've won. I've not got a story. <laughs> I've got nothing on that. Um, and, and what was the most I want to ask you about what you're doing now and what happened after that. But what was the most beautiful thing you saw um, either doing that or, or in your sailing career to date? Oh, the best moment, of my, apart from my daughter being born, I was told the other day yes yes keep that the in first there. amazing thing in my life the most amazing thing is my daughter being born the second amazing thing in my life was sailing into australia 
in the first place on Maiden, where literally the very foundations of the Royal Yacht Squadron, I think, trembled. I mean, I think paintings fell off walls. It was <laughs> such a huge Sexist men withered moment. I mean, li- there were mouths. Li- we, 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 as we came into the harbour, literally there were people standing there going, with their mouths just hanging open. It was such a huge moment. I wish I could explain to young women now how much of a moment it was. I mean, you're not dead. You're supposed to be dead. This leg was really supposed to have killed you. What do you mean you've won? You've won this leg by 38 hours. It was. I think you're telling so it quite massive. well. We're getting a good, I think we're getting a good inkling about that. But it is hard for people to imagine at that time quite how remarkable that was. I mean, it would be remarkable at any time, but let us not forget the times in which you were doing this. And in terms of, um, you know, whales or beautiful sort of, or, or either scary things in nature or beautiful things, I imagine you see many, many things that take your breath away and that will be with you for the rest of your time. But is there anything that people wouldn't expect you to see or that's particularly sort of outstanding in terms of natural beauty? Or do you not really have time to even be, I know you're not sitting around with your binoculars looking for dolphins, but are there things you see that just take your breath away? Yeah. I mean, everything about the ocean takes my breath away. The sunrises, the sunsets, the sunrise after a really bad storm at sea, when you realise you see a chink of grey light up ahead of you and you think, oh, we're still alive. That's good. Um, icebergs, I mean, as dangerous they are, as they are, they are stunningly beautiful. Whales, dolphins, um, my favourite, my favourite sight at sea. And if I never go to the Southern Ocean again, I will miss is albatrosses. Albatrosses are nothing prepares you. And I'm going goosebumpy now just thinking about it. Nothing prepares you for albatrosses. They have um, they have territories at sea and they spend months at sea. And so you it takes about four days to sail through one albatross territory before you get into the next one and it wheels away and the next one comes in. Oh, I actually cry thinking about it. It is an extraordinary the thing to uh, witness these these majestic birds with wingspans almost the width of the boat um and you know there are there are times where all they do is surf on on the wind they just these incredible beautiful wind surfers um and you know they never flap their wings and they are just utterly gorgeous Unfortunately, along with everything else in the ocean, they are at risk now um, of becoming extinct because of what we're doing. And in the 50 years or 45 years I've been at sea, um, unfortunately, we see less and less of the beautiful ocean that we were gifted on this gorgeous planet because we're busy destroying it. Sorry. It's, no, don't be sorry. I think it's it's quite an, quite an important topic and very very bit. happy to have it in the podcast. <laughs> um, I mean, I wish we didn't have to have it in the podcast, but it is very much a fact to be looking at. Because, but it's an enormous. When we talk about mental health and how good it is for us to be out in nature, you cannot immerse yourself more fully in nature than what you did, where you are literally surrounded by nature at its fiercest and most beautiful. But then I guess, and and your story sort of represents this really well because out there you're fighting for survival your competitive spirits come out you're busting through glass ceilings for women whether consciously or unconsciously that's what you were doing but then you get back then you sell maiden the day after you got back is that right well I think the day after we got back I had to think about it I mean it took a couple of months to sell her but um, but you're on yeah, the sort I mean, of putting it up on eBay day yeah. after <laughs> we never had any bloody money we just never had any money. I mean, you know, sailing now, there, there are 
people making a lot of money in sailing now, but uh, we were ahead of the curve. But now I had to sell that. And uh, I sold it to a lovely couple, which was uh, some some relief. Um, and she How went weird, on... though, after every because you, you fitted oh, that boat and did everything. For that, but, I mean, that is like saying, well, I sold my child, but they were a nice couple. Um, it, that's a hell of a, like yeah, a hell of a sentence. And and you then went to a pretty difficult time, from what I gather, in terms of your actual your own life, your own personal life. Oh, I had ups and downs. You know, most of it was brilliant. Um, I then the next project I did was the first all female crew to attempt the non-stop round the world record. We broke seven world records before we lost our mast in the Southern Ocean. Um, then I did the world's first mixed um, uh, professional sailing team, six men, six women. Um, and has that been done since? Because no, that was yeah, hasn't. that's a couple of decades no. ago. Yeah, that yeah. was twenty-two Isn't years incredible? ago. Isn't that? Incredible? Oh, it's extraordinary. We broke more world records than any other sailing team in a 10 year period, because funnily enough, it's not rocket science. You put the best men together and the best women together and you have the best team. It's not difficult, but still women can't get onto the big men's racing boats with the big money. And you still, you know, you don't have these things happen. Anyway, we, we gave it a go. Um, Then I went off uh, to, to Qatar in the Middle East and put a big sailing project on there. They didn't pay me. I put, risked everything uh on the strength of the contract didn't pay me and I lost everything so at the age of 43 I was forced into bankruptcy I lost my home I spent a large part of my life working very hard for had to put my disabled mother in a home where she died which I will never forgive them for um and my daughter was five so you know uh, as women do I rolled up the sleeves and I had to look after my mum and my daughter so I've really spent the last 20 years 18 years putting my life back together which so you I have lost done everything at 43 with a child and got a real job I'm guessing not down Morrison's that's when the education could have come in handy yeah, when I needed a I real job now. yes yeah. I see that little little slight little hitch in the inspirational oh, do anything you want yeah. apart from anything where you need a degree although to be honest I think it's absolute bollocks that you need a degree for lots oh, of, I, I used to recruit people when I had it was in my boardroom days I had a policy of lots of roles we recruited um, from a pool that specifically wasn't. We didn't penalise graduates, but mm. we they they didn't what I didn't. But you looked why. outside the box, yeah, because I, was, I don't know why we're saying being a graduate has anything to do with what we're asking for because it has nothing to do with it. Yeah, um, which is just a tiny sort of tip of the iceberg. You know more about those than me. So you rebuilt yourself in forty three, and I do think as well. I mean, what a time for that to befall you because I I do think that um, that is a bloody hard decade for women. I don't think nearly yep. enough is said about the hormonal crashes that Ooh. women go through in their 40s I had a full-on two full-on extreme breakdowns in my late 40s I don't just mean giving up the boardroom to become a comic um or that and that did actually coincide with one of them but joking aside terrible sort of life-threateningly bad ones and I don't know any women actually any of my close friends who haven't gone through something pretty bloody awful in their 40s in terms of life and mood crashes on a level that if this was happening to men we would be addressing um and and i we do talk a lot about the menopause thank god we do but i don't know if we talk well, enough we about do, the but... run the running because oh. i think the the 40s run into it is extreme it's like sniper alley i think it's brutal no one prepares you for it you see you're not you're not ready you know you're thinking 50s 60s i'll go through the menopause that's way away you're not you're not thinking about exactly what you're talking about and i i, I it it is it's um it does come come at you from the side um and I think as well 
trying to get a job in your 40s for the well for the first time is probably not what the best did you idea. do then what did you do well I ended up working for the child exploitation online protection center so I worked with the police for two years um uh, protecting children online and learned actually loads and and it was a I, I loved I loved doing that and I you know I worked on the 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 2000 um what was it the 2004 but I can't remember whichever uh, the resolution on the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. I worked on that um, and and did amazing things. So and which led me then to do my psychology degree before I realised that and I no I I want to go back to uh, I want to go back to sailing and actually finding made and made my mind up that I I wouldn't probably use my degree to go back into child protection. Um, you were quite found, a high found... achiever when you were down on your luck, to be fair. Um, that all sounds quite amazing uh, to be doing all of that on the backdrop that you were facing. Um, and did you, but it's so powerful to hear people say this because it's it's really easy without the story of your your sort of teenage years, your relationship with your stepdad, the, you know, that they say, um, there's a Japanese saying, I think, um, that came up on one of my recent podcasts, you know, you fall down seven times, stand up eight and there's, and obviously for us, it's probably been more than seven times and it will be more than eight. Um, but the standing up again um, and finding Maiden. So just, and this, I think it is really important that we come up to current day and what you're doing. Um, we'll put a link to um, to Maiden Factor and all the work you're doing to educate Thank you. girls and to, to change the world. That small ambition that you have laid your claim to and are doing a lot about more than most of us who are paying lip service to it. So, so finding Maiden, what was that like? Finding your first love child. Oh, my God. That was just amazing. I mean, I, I was literally, you see, Maiden has a, has a way of bursting into my life. This is the second time she's done it. I mean, I literally, I met the guy who said, can I make a documentary of the film Maiden? And will you help me find the footage? And then a week later, I had an email from someone saying, did you know your boat's off to the knacker's yard? Oh, what? So those two things happened literally as I was looking for my next thing to do. I mean, seriously, you couldn't write it. It's like someone up there went, uh, maiden, 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 maiden. So uh, that's when I, I uh, found the money to buy her again, rescued her again, second time, and got her back to uh, the UK. Um, Princess Hire, so King Hussein sponsored Maiden the first time round, and uh, his daughter, Princess Hire, uh, helped us fund the rescue. She said, my dad will come down from heaven and, and haunt me if I don't do this. Um, so that was a that was a lovely full circle for us again. So we she looks fabulous. I mean, actually, if someone spent that much money on a refit on me, I'd look fabulous too. But um, she looks amazing, as beautiful as she ever did. And really, it was a sort of, she was launched um, by, he was then Prince Charles and it was then um, the Duchess of, of Cornwall. They launched her in November 2018, just as the film came out. I'd love to say I organised all of the timings. It was all very good. As a BAFTA voter, I commend your uh, the way it was done. Couldn't have been better. <laughs> it was extraordinary. And I was like, well, you know, this is great. We've got mate. What are we going to do? And it was Princess Hire who said, look, <clears throat> I, I'm passionate about girls' education. And I said, well, actually, I... I feel I need to put something back as well because I threw mine away. And I'm actually a patron of a number of girls' educational charities. So maiden ourselves around the world, raising funds and awareness for girls' education. Um, we did that from 2018 up until ooh, um, September last year. And um, one of the people that we met during the premiere in New York of the film, I am totally name dropping now, was Whoopi Goldberg. And, Drop away, uh, we love a bit of that. I, 
<laughs> she's so awesome. I love her so much. And as I was saying to her, would you be our first patron of, of what we're doing now with Maiden? She literally looked at me and she went, where are the black girls in sailing? And I went, I don't know. Oh my God. She said, sailing is the whitest sport I have mm, ever seen. And I thought, well oh, made, he's right. And I never thought about it. I've spent 33 years trying to get girls and women into sailing. They'll look like me. That's no use. We don't know what we don't know, do we? That's we the trouble with any kind we... of prejudice and discrimination. Exactly. And that's what she said to me. She said, it's unconscious bar. She said, everyone does it. Should I do it? Everyone does it. But now you know. Now you know. What are you going to do about it for me to become patron of, of your of your project? So I thought, okay, you know, sailing is male, pale and stale. You know, we've dealt with the male and the stale bit. Now we have to deal with the pale bit. So over the last couple of years... Um, we've never done positive discrimination. I don't believe in that. But what we have done is we've looked for our new crew in um, not just a little shallow pool where most people look for their crews in um, Western countries. We've looked all over the world and we have found some really amazing superstars of the future. Um, so we now have the most ethnically diverse crew, professional crew, to ever sail around the world. Um, Janella well, I hope you've v. got Whoopi as the patron after all that as well. Not Whoopi that that's the only our... reason you've done it, but yes, I hope after all that she didn't get enough changed my mind. She did become our patron, and um, she's, I think, really pleased with what we've managed to do. Um, Maiden looks very different. You look at Maiden's crew and you look at other crews, and it stands out so much now, you can't not see it. But Janella and V will be the first two black women to ever sail around the world. It is 2023. It's That's so shocking. Um, we have um, the first Middle Eastern woman to sail around the world. We have a, a refugee from Afghanistan is our camera woman. She escaped the Taliban two years ago. Of course, what's happening to girls' education there is just, oh, just I can't talk about it where crying so she's now the voice for um the women and girls um left in afghanistan um we have two um indian women on board uh so yeah the maiden is is again changing the face of of uh sailing um and and i hope you know sort of playing some part in in changing the sport forever the, definitely the way it looks um she's now on her final race around the world Poor old thing. She's um she's ready to retire. She's and done so good, hasn't she? She didn't have much of a menopause. She just cracked on. Well, she cracked on. But while she was cracking on, I was having the menopause, and now I'm ready to retire. So I said to Maiden, look, you do one more race and you retire so that I can retire. <laughs> I bet you won't so, retire. You'll just end up doing incredible things as a force for good in a zillion other ways that <laughs> to other people would look like a full-time job and you'll pretend you've retired. But I, I respect the intent. Um, and when is that When is that um, final voyage due to end? So we crossed the... We. That's the role we. My wonderful new young crew crossed the start line of the OGR on the 10th of September. And they will finish in April next year. Uh, we will then have, we think we're going to do, we, we've never toured the UK and Ireland. We've done the whole of the world. We've done three times round, hundreds of thousands of miles, never done the UK and Ireland. So we're going to do the UK and Ireland. Um, and then I think she'll retire around about this time next year. There's going to be tears. There will be tears. There will be tears. Yeah, absolutely. 
We will put a link to maidenfactor.org um, and I, on the landing page, uh, you say educate a girl, change the world. And there are many reasons which you outline beautifully on the site as to where, where that is um, a, a fact and a fact that we all should still be engaging with and taking nothing for granted. You may have answered the first of the three questions I ask everybody on the podcast, Tracy, or you may not. But what would you pick as your namaste, motherfucking, life-changing moment? Oh, beating the crap out of the other boats coming into Australia. It just, yeah, nothing will ever match that. If it wasn't that, I was going to be like, Jesus, you've got a lot in the locker, Tracy. Fair play. <laughs> so, um, and what's your favourite joke? Well, this is a difficult one because my favourite joke, because it was my mother's favourite joke, and because every time I tell it, I remember her laughing so hard. God, my mother had a great laugh. She used to laugh so hard that it took hours to get to the end of the joke. The tears will be running down her face. My favourite joke is the wide mouth frog, which, of course, you can't do on a podcast, I, I thought, as I cleverly came up with my favourite joke. Um, but, um, yeah, it's uh, I, it's a classic. It is a classic. Would you like me to put a link to someone telling the wide mouth frog? I think that's a very good idea because I don't want to do it. I can see you don't want to do it. And as someone, it's not like it's not like I can say, oh, come on, Tracy, be up for a challenge. I think you're someone who's uh, demonstrated your capacity to be up for a challenge. We will find a wide mouth frog rendition that will do you <laughs> and your lovely um, late mother proud. And if you could give one bit of life advice to anybody listening, what would it be? Oh, God, that's, you know... I don't know if this is the same with you, but this could change yearly, the advice that I, that I would give to people. And I would imagine looking at what you've done with your life, you would absolutely agree with that. So this year, my my thing, my piece of advice I would give to people, and this is a whole, this is a very new one for me. People are going to, people who know me, know me are going to go, what? God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. That was Tracy Edwards. We've put links to the 2018 film Maiden that Tracy and I talked about and, of course, her website, maidenfactor.org, in the show notes. So that is it for this week. Thank you so, so much for listening. We're so appreciating those of you who are rating, reviewing and recommending us. Massively helps. Do please keep doing that. And we will be back in your feed next Thursday, as always, when I will be talking to Richard Franks of Viral Mum Videos fame, which I absolutely love. I had literally hundreds of thousands of mums messaging me saying, I thought it was just me. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen for Pod People Productions with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Namaste Motherfuckers. Pod People. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling... 
We are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.